Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. God, I admit and confess my own shortcomings and and failings. I'm simply but a man. We are all simply but human beings. Would you help us? Would you step into this room today and, and make your word make sense to our heads and our hearts that we may abide by it, that we may delight in it, that we may find our joy in it alone, God? Would you help us this morning to see uh, the world how you would have us see it and, and to see uh, that through the lens of your word, God? It's only a work that you can do, so we ask that you would do that. We thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, When Leah and I got married, I became the guy that changed all the oil in the cars. um, And like I was the one, I became the protector of the house, uh, which is, that's ridiculous. Um, And I had like all the stuff around the house that needed to be fixed. That's me now. That's not dad anymore. That's me. Um, and Leah, I'm pretty sure, thought that uh, I was like Chip Gaines or something. Because uh, she was, like, we would talk to friends, and she would say, yeah, I'm pretty sure Jake's going to build a wall here and, and make this tower thing. And I was like, uh. Because I think maybe she thought I was construction-minded because I was a roofer. And I was like, I can roof the wall. Like, that's pretty much all I know how to do. Um, so, and then now that I'm a dad, uh, life changed for me again. All of the crying babiness, like that comes to me. It's not like, oh, your baby's crying, you got to take it. Like that comes to me now. Uh, and trust me, like if you've never had kids, nobody else is responsible for changing that diaper but you. Uh, and so that's, that's just a lot of responsibility just for being a parent. Like that's all, you have the title, so you got to do all the stuff now. And I'm just waiting for my first gray whisker, like whenever that pops up. I'm really kind of excited for it. I'll let you guys know how that goes. Um, <laughs> But here, here's the idea. Since I'm a husband and a dad, I act as a husband and a dad. This is the idea that Peter is writing toward. When he writes the word, therefore, at the beginning of verse 13, he's saying, since verses 1 through 12 are doctrinally true, we move to dutiful actions. Since we have been adopted into the family of God by the sweetest grace in the universe, God now commands us to act in accordance with that. Beginning in verse 1, since we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God, since we've been born again to a living hope according to God's mercy, since we have an inheritance that is unshakable and imperishable, since we have a purposeful suffering that we can rejoice in, since we have a salvation and grace that the prophets spent their lives trying to understand, men and women sacrificed their lives to announce it, God the Spirit brought it to us himself, perfect angels long to peek down from heaven just to see it. And Jesus Christ himself suffered on the cross for us to have it. Since all of these things are true that we've been going through the past few weeks, that we find in the first 12 verses, since all of those are true, we are now called to act. Theologically and doctrinally, these things are true, but the truth compels us to act. 
And so we move from theology to practice. We move from doctrine to duty. And it's absolutely imperative for you and I that we do not get the order mixed. There is no human action that brings about the first 12 verses. It is only by the grace and mercy of God alone in Christ. We do not act or obey or have any sort of action uh, in order to be saved. But since we have this grace, since we have this salvation, now we are moved to action. And this is God's call through Peter in our verses. Why? If you think about who he's writing to, the the suffering that they're going through, the persecution, uh, the emperor of Rome said, uh, hey, we're going to try this thing and burn down a good chunk of the city. And then he's like, oh, gosh, I don't want to take responsibility for that. Let's blame it on the Christians. And so now everybody in the empire hates Christians. And so Peter's writing to them, uh, just his whole letter of 1 Peter is, don't run. Stand firm in the true grace of God that you have with you. And so the first 12 verses spent all that time there. But why would he write that they need to act? Why would he write two commands? Why, why do they need to be moved to action at all? Like, why can't they just hear about the grace again and be okay? Both need to be present. There's something extremely God-glorifying and joyful about recalling the grace of God in our lives, but there's also something extremely God-glorifying and joyful about acting upon the grace that is ours. This is the Christian life. It's always in that order, and they're always together. So the question is, how do we glorify God and find joy in the Christian life? How do we do both of those? Uh, Two commands in our text that that you'll see. The first one is, uh, set your hope fully on the grace. And the second one is, be holy in all your conduct. The first is set your hope fully on the grace. And the second is be holy in all your conduct. Let's take a look at the first one. If you look at verse 13 again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we have to ask the question, like, what does it mean to, to set my hope? I can set my hook when I'm, when I'm fishing. No? Okay. But how do I set my hope? How do do we do that? Think of it this way. Hope is defined in the New Testament as an expectant watch. Somebody standing there ready for something to happen. So as we're staring up at the night sky, waiting for a shooting star, or men, our bride is about to be walking through those doors with a white dress on in front of all of our friends and family, that's sort of expectantly watching. We are expectantly watching because we know the thing that we're about to see is amazing and one of a kind and beautiful. And so that's what we think of when you think of hope. Uh, It hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. It's going to be beautiful. So we're on alert. We are waiting for it. We're watching for it. But this isn't a physical command to follow. Set your hope is not a physical command to follow. It's not go to this place and do this thing with your arms. It's a mental command. We are literally commanded to feel an emotion about one day. That's crazy. Which is why our passage says, set your hope fully on or look forward to expectantly to the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus returns, when Jesus comes back. By every bit of mental strength that you and I have, we are to look forward with just this hope, with an expectant hope of, man, Jesus is coming back one day. And it's going to be amazing. And here's just one of the most amazing, one of the most astonishing truths of this passage. 
just thinking of the realities of that day are far better than any sorrow or even any joy that we experience here and now. Just thinking of the realities of that one day. Why? Think about it. Just, just think about it for a second, what that's going to be like. When Jesus comes back, and if we're believers in the room, we're going home, uh, whether that's new earth, new heaven, I'm not sure. Um, but as believers, we will have perfected bodies with no pain, no back pain in the morning, no cancer, no disease. We'll have no more tears to cry. No death. No, no present evil. All of that when Jesus comes back. You see why that's hopeful. So how do we mentally obey a command to feel an emotion? Thankfully, our passage helps us and it gives us two ways. The first is prepare your minds for action and the second is to be sober-minded. Um, the first one, prepare your minds for action. Literally translated, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind, which, uh, just to explain, men in the day of Peter, they would be wearing a robe or a tunic, and so when it came time to fight, when it came time, like, stuff's going on, you got to run away, you can't run with this robe and tunic, you're going to trip, you're going to fall, um, so girding up your loins was to grab all of the stuff and tuck it into your belt, and see, look, he's ready for action, look at that guy, um, so that's, that's what it would look like. Essentially, just move everything out of the way and charge at the person to look like this. Uh, so essentially, prepare yourself for battle. Um, but this is a mental command too. Like gird up the loins of your mind is how it's literally translated. Prepare your minds for action. How do we do that? If we're to look forward expectantly to the day of Jesus coming back, we're going to have to prepare our minds for the spiritual battles that are to come. But what does that look like? Just practically speaking, here's what it is. We prepare our minds with the doctrine of the gospel. It's the reason the first 12 verses are first, and then we come to this command. That's, he was preparing their minds. He's like, therefore, prepare your minds with everything we just talked about. All of this grace, all of this truth. Prepare your minds with the gospel. Every battle with sin begins not with physical things, but in our minds. That's why this is a mental command. When sin, when we are tempted to sin, we have 10, maybe five seconds to fight, or we're going to lose hard. We can't improvise in the moment. We have to be prepared. No soldier goes into battle thinking, well, I'll figure it out when I get there. He's prepared. He knows the different places he can run to. He knows that this guy's got his back here. He's prepared. He's battle ready. We have to prepare our minds for action with the truth of the gospel. We have to begin our day in the first 12 verses before 13 can even happen. Spend the first part of your day with your Bible. Before your feet hit the ground in the morning, you will already have temptations that are going to arise. So as quickly as possible, read and pray and gather up the, the gospel truth to help you fight. Ephesians 6.10 says it this way. Put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This is not a physical battle, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Jesus is described as the way, the truth, and the life. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the only righteousness you and I ever have is by Jesus. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation that we find in Jesus and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God also describing Jesus, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So the question, what are you doing to prepare your minds for action? Do you see that you're in a battle? cannot see it physically. It's not against uh, physical beings. Do you spend the first part of your day in God's word? In order to hope, we must prepare for action, but we must also be sober-minded. Literally, what the word means when it says sober-minded is free from the effects of intoxicants. It implies evaluating things correctly because you can see clearly and your mind isn't numb with intoxicating influences. This, is drunken, this, this drunkenness is a mental disorder, disorder, a mental distortion caused by worry or fear or envy or anger or pleasure. Whatever will mentally distort God's truth, that is what can be intoxicating. So just for instance... Games, TV, radio, internet, sports, Netflix, news, Instagram, Facebook, these aren't bad things. But they can also be overused and intoxicating in the same way, literally, that alcohol is not in and of itself an evil thing. It can be overused and intoxicating. Same, same with food, same with everything. We can enjoy them, but we must not let them overtake our minds. What is it that you do to relax your mind, and does it intoxicate you? Does it take you away from the things of God? And just remember Peter's original audience. They've got a whole lot going on. It would be so easy for them to say, gosh, I'm getting persecuted over here, persecuted over here. You know what? I'm just going to shut off mentally. This is too much for me. Peter's saying, no. Look, Christ was sober-minded going to the cross as he suffered in your suffering. Stand firm. Be sober-minded so that no matter what comes, we have the mental capacity to hope in Christ, to literally change our emotion and hope in Christ instead of being drunk with the things of this world. Again, all comes back to how do we be sober-minded? Well, we start with, with the word. The truth of the gospel is the thing that we are supposed to focus on, not anything else. Second, Uh, command that we see in the passage is to be holy in all your conduct. Uh, If you look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. 
literally when it says, uh, be holy in all your conduct. It says, be holy in everything you do. Be holy in everything you do. Just think about that for one second. Just think about one day. Be holy as you brush your teeth. Be holy as you shower. Be holy as you drive to work on 635. Be holy as you talk to the people at work. Be holy as you eat lunch. Be holy as that attractive person walks by. Be holy as you listen to the radio. Be holy as you drive home. Be holy when you get home. Be holy as you listen to your spouse's day. Be holy as you sit alone. Be holy as you watch TV. Be holy as you are online. Be holy when you scroll through Instagram. Be holy as you talk with friends. Does this feel impossible yet? Because it should. Who can do this? Like maybe one of those I could be? Maybe. Probably not. Where do we start? Thankfully, this one also has help. If you look at when it says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, that is going to help us to see how we can be holy. Um, conformed is the Greek word, suskamatizo. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, but it's the practice of adopting oneself a pattern or a mold. Adopting to a pattern or a mold. So when the text reads, do not be conformed, it means not adopting to a pattern or a mold of these ignorant desires and passions that we used to have when we were ignorant of the things of God. So nature determines actions. Nature determines actions. So if we're believers, we were at one point by nature sons of disobedience, daughters of disobedience. And naturally, we disobeyed God. Before we were caused to be born again, we patterned our lives after the sinful desires of our own uh, natural flesh or the, the, the nature that we had, and we had no power to conquer, no power to have any self-control, no power to, to, uh, to overcome these destructive desires. But then we're saved by grace. However, the evil desires still exist within our mortal bodies, but we have a new power. We must break with the past and depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome evil desires in the same way that I can't party like I used to in high school now that I'm married, now that, I, now that I'm a dad. Really, I shouldn't party like I did in high school anyway. But because I'm a dad and a, and a husband, I can't do those things. It's the same way. We are growing more and more into an image of Christ. And so some of the things that we used to do according to the passions of our evil flesh, it's like, no, I'm not gonna do that anymore. Do not be conformed. Secondly, we must conform to the proper image. We must adopt a pattern of life as we look to a proper image. The holy God is our example. Be holy in all our conduct is impossible in our own strength. Like, let's just, let's just say that. Walking through one day, man, I couldn't do any of those. And I think if we were all honest with ourselves, we would say, yeah, I can't do any of those. It's impossible in our own strength. However, what God commands, he also will always enable us to be able to accomplish. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he's talking to people and, and he's bringing up, like when it, talks about, uh, when it talks about lust, when it talks about greed, when Jesus is just speaking about these things, he's like, no, it's not an action. It's a, it's a matter of the heart. And that's why the disciples, after the Sermon on the Mount is done, they're like, who can be saved? It's a really good question but he always enables us to accomplish whatever he commands us to do. He leads every one of us to this sense of spiritual bankruptcy. 
which recognizes the need for a Savior who alone empowers us to be holy. It's on purpose that that feels impossible. It is impossible in our own strength. The only way to live the Christian life is to humble ourselves uh, by realizing our bankruptcy and saying, I can't do it. Who can be saved? Not me. And by surrendering to and depending on the indwelling spirit who alone can empower us to keep the Bible's otherwise impossible commands. To be holy in all of our conduct then means to lean on the only holy part of us, the spirit within us. The truth of the gospel is that there is no holiness in us apart from the work of, uh, of Christ and the holiness of Christ that was substituted, substituted to us on the cross. The only holiness we have is found in Jesus, but that means when we read, be holy as I am holy, we are both supremely insufficient to do so, but in Christ we have a holy status. And the Spirit's work now is for believers to, to move us toward this holiness in a work called sanctification. So the call to be holy in all that we do, that's a hefty, big, heavy command, but it's one that we can actually and truly, by grace alone, work toward. There is change. We have salvation and grace in proper order, and so now we work, and the work we do is empowered by God within us, and the commands for us to follow are not heavy. They don't take away our fun. Literally, it says hope. That's a great command. Other places, it says have joy. Okay, that's an easy command. I can do that one. God commands us to joy, and then he brings it to us. We're to be holy in all of our conduct, and it works this way every time the commands of God always lead us back to the first 12 verses. Because we read 13, 14, 15, 16, and we're like, gosh, who can do this? And it leads us back to verses 1 through 12. Jesus was the one who was able. And so the Christian life is, is surrendering back to, Jesus, I trust in you alone, not in my works. The gospel is the work of Christ to save us, but it is also the truth to keep us saved. And so any and all of our actions or works are all under the grace of the gospel. This passage actually shows us the gospel in itself in that we, the commands are in order as well. We must hope fully on the grace of God and then we're called to be holy. Set your hope fully and then be holy. It's in order. What a grace. So what about you? In what ways can you set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at Jesus' return? In what ways can you admit your incapability to be holy on your own? What sins do you need to confess of? Do you lean on the Spirit who is your only holiness? Does your theology lead you to action? And then does your lack of action, lack of ability to do the action, lead you back to your theology? One of the ways uh, that we as a church desire to be gospel-centered uh, is that we take communion every Sunday. So, uh, just in case there's any, 
any time, anything that, uh, that we ever say from up here that is wrong, that is not gospel-centered, we always have this to fall back on. It is always a visual representation of the gospel just in case we as human men, uh, when we speak to you, fall short of the glory of God, which we will. But as we hold the bread, we hold a symbol of the broken body that was broken for us. As we drink the juice, it is a symbol of the blood that was shed for us and now covers us in Jesus. It is a sacrament to remind us yet again of the gospel because nothing else will sustain us. Nothing else will motivate us. Nothing else will give us the the joy and the grace and the mercy and the salvation and the hope that we need outside of the gospel. We will not find it. That's why we are gospel-centered. to live the lives of, of service to God, in order to do any of the things God commands us to, it's all coming back to the gospel. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper together, do so with this in mind. If you're a believer in Jesus by faith, then you're welcome to the table as part of our family. If you are not yet a believer, or if you have sin that you have not yet repented of, I ask that you would remain in your seat during this time. 1 Corinthians says that you would eat and drink of the body and blood in an unworthy manner. And this is the gospel we're talking about. If you're unrepentant, do so in this time. Take the time to to turn back to the grace. Set your hope yet again. Lean on the Spirit to help you to be holy in your repentance. If you're an unbeliever, right now, as it sits, you have no hope in and of yourself. As you sit with the command to be holy, you have none of it. Turn from your sin today. Believe by faith in Jesus Christ's work for you on your behalf today. Believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross this morning. For all of us, uh, here is our prayer. Father, we admit that we are not holy outside of you and we need to be reminded of and covered by this body and this blood again. Would you, by your grace, empower us to act boldly upon the gospel in Jesus' name, amen. So when you're ready, take your time to just sit with the truth of the gospel, to sit with the the command to be holy, and in a very real way, set your minds on the hope. And then when you're ready, uh, the elements are on the back tables at the back of the room. Uh, When you're ready, grab those, bring them back to your seats, and we'll take them together here in a minute. Both commands to set our hope and to be holy they're both impossible and that's on purpose they're both to lead us back to the only one who could it would be really bad if we were able to abide by any of these commands in our own strength because then we wouldn't rely on the gospel alone so how do we how do we hopefully in the grace that we are going to have when Jesus returns. One way is that we sing about it. 
the words that we're about to sing are when Christ shall come, that one day, when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow with humble adoration and then proclaim, my God, how great thou art. And we look forward expectantly to that grace that is going to be ours one day. And so in the meantime, we stand firm. We stand in the true grace of this gospel. It's all possible because on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, I think that all of us in this room are guilty of trying to, uh, trying to, to abide and obey by your commands uh, before we ever think about, before we ever mentally ascend to the gospel. And so we try to, we try to work for our salvation. We try to work for any of the graces that you give us, God. Would you help us to remember the gospel first? Would you help us to set our hopes fully on the grace that will be ours one day so that anything that comes, whether it's a, a scheme of the devil, whether it's our own flesh that's, that's fighting and struggling against the new man or new woman in us, would you help us to stand firm in your grace, God? For all of us, would you give us a mind that looks forward to the hope one day. One day, God, would you help us? Give us a mind that thinks about and meditates on and, and has that just at the forefront of all, of all the rest of our days so that anything that comes will be in its proper place. Even that is only by the truth of your gospel. We thank you for the good news of Christ and the work that he accomplished on the cross. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.